Hi, I'm Stephen Crafty. I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne, and I'm here with Chris Stanley. He's co-director of Splinter Society and um, operates that practice with his life and business partner, architect and jeweller Asher Nicholas. Welcome to the program. That's true. Stephen, thank you for having us. No, look, Chris, you're an interesting one. I think we share a common aesthetic, a common colour. We're both very black. We are in of, our taste. often dressed and often dressed. Um, tell me, Chris, you do you know you've done a number of projects in Melbourne in domestic work that are very dark, moody, and do very much capture the essence of Melbourne. Is it something that just feels right? Is it the type of clients you tend to attract? Uh, yeah, it's a really good question because it's it has dominated everything we've kind of thought about in architecture and fashion and jewellery for, well, since we were students, I think. Um, for us, it's a lot about framing things and it's it's almost about taking away rather than adding the black. So it enables us to um, reduce the stimulus and focus on other parts, whether it's the landscape, whether it's texture, uh, whether it's the artificial lighting or the natural light, I think. So I think it's a way of controlling the aesthetic um, and, and framing aspects of the aesthetic. You mentioned when um, when you and Asher were studying at university together that uh, Marie Fanaki was a really important yeah. source of inspiration. She was. She was probably one of, well, she, was, she won the Herbert Hoffman Prize twice Indeed. and really considered one of Melbourne's leading jewellers with uh, Gallery Fanaki. What was it about her work that inspired both of you? Um, I, I think I think for us it was there was an organicness in it, but but a, an industrial mechanical aesthetic, and it was so strong formally. It was light, but it was heavy. It had a delicacy, but it was very often made with steel. So there was some some real contradictions or playing around with opposing conditions that we thought was quite spectacular and and moving in a way and I think I mean at the time too again we we were students when we spent a lot of time in her shop wishing we could afford things in there and um I uh, we were looking a lot at Liebus Woods and Japanese architects like Shin Takamatsu who Mm. who played with very similar things these kind of um fairly outrageous forms I think and Mari's work was like a, a microcosm of these large buildings that we were quite interested in at the time as well. She was quite amazing. Um, Chris, I, you know you've done a number of key houses over the last few years and I won't mention the you know who lives there and who doesn't but I remember there was one uh, uh, quite a well-known person who called you around and said uh, look, can you take a look? There's a hole in my floor in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, that's and correct. tell me about that because yeah. the result was a very black house again. And yeah. and tell me about that story because it is quite delightful. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> without mentioning names. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so it's it's um, we were invited to this person's house because she told her um, her nephew, who was an electrician, that she had to fix a hole in the bathroom floor. And and there was a few other problems with the bathroom. It was a uh, 1970s bathroom sitting inside a California bungalow. So we we went around to uh, to see if we could be of assistance with this hole, and were greeted at the door by someone who a very famous um, Australian identity who was there in her pajamas, and uh, and greeted us. And we went inside and looked at the issue and. 
um, having looked around the house, felt that probably the hole in the floor wasn't the biggest problem. The house was had possums dead in the walls and was sitting on the ground, and there was a lot of issues, a lot of leaks, and no storage for someone who's got enormous collections of of you know of precious things, I suppose. Mm. So, so we began an exploration that took two two to three years designing. I think working with this person, working through a whole lot of um, uh, memories, a whole lot of personal kind of. Um, things that were very important to her, family things, um, uh, friendships, and, and, and really unpacked a bit of, a, I suppose, a biography of her life and then tried to distill that into a piece of architecture. And, Chris, what happened with the hole in the floor? Didn't you just plug it up with a freestanding bath from memory? There's <laughs> actually a, a two or th- about a 200 mil thick piece of granite sitting over the top of pretty much where the hole was, so there's no one will ever see that hole again, you can be assured. Um, with that house, it was black from the outside, which from memory also intensified the excellent garden architecture garden. It did, yeah. Superb garden that Eckersley's did at that house, and... Um, our client really wanted an escape from public life and and a key phrase she often said was, I want to be able to go on holidays without leaving the home. So we spent a long time un- trying to understand where she liked to go on holiday if she could and where she liked to relax. And I think there was a lot of stories around sort of obviously, you know, Bali and being in sort of jungle escapes, but also Japan and that kind of, uh, she used the word Zen retreat a lot, mm-hmm. I suppose. And it was... Um, this project, her house was about trying to distill those ideas into a small California suburban bungalow and the black helped us do that and surrounding the house with garden and creating views, kind of framed views from within the house that that blocked out neighbours and just extended through layers of screens and light and garden foliage. Um, You did a house also recently and it's very monumental. You used a lot of uh, granite, Uh, through the place, massive rocks. The the bench is almost like this giant boulder, uh, and again black, mm-hmm. um, and very. It's a very strong masculine house. Tell me about that one because it, it's yeah. been a long process. Yeah, it was. I mean, it was a big opportunity for us to push ideas that we've been working with on small scale for a long time. So client came to us wanting a wanting a large house and wanting there wasn't wasn't a solid aesthetic direction they they were seeking but they loved bluestone they loved granite they wanted a robust house they wanted a house that created not an enclave but kind of blocked the neighboring boundaries I suppose and created kind of opened up to a bit of a a family entertaining oasis mm-hmm. in the middle so we knowing they wanted rock and no I mean it wasn't an unlimited budget so we looked for opportunities for where we could use rock in a cost-effective manner and working with a local supplier here uh, made some connections to quarries um, um, in a couple of different parts around the world and we, we chose uh, bits of stone that are normally discarded when boulders are extracted from the earth. They normally cut boulders, square up the edges and then discard what are effectively called skins and we purchased each of those skins um, and 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 also some of the boulders as well, actually, I think, and some of them were sort of seven or eight tonne, and we filled, I think it was four or five open-top shipping containers with various bits of rock, which were, you know, celebrated all the chiselling and the extraction process in the surface of the rock and had them, stage one was delivering these uh, open-top containers on site and then kind of, 
in a way we knew roughly where we wanted them and how big roughly but we sort of had to then craft the house so chi- around did them. you chisel them down or they look there was a little bit of manipulating but by and large we we worked with each rock to put it in a place where it best suited yeah. um we yeah so we'd given rough dimensions and and then we looked at what faces were natural, what were cut as they were extracted in the process mm. and kind of rotated and positioned them mm. uh, in th- that first stage of the house, really. So, they... um, Chris, there's, I've just seen um, another black house. Mm. Very interesting project in North Fitzroy um, that I thought was fascinating. Originally, it was a grocery, um, a grocery complex for an old grocery business, yeah. and it was joining two Victorian warehouse-style terraces together yeah. to create a home. And again, you were fortunate that the client loved black. Fantastic client, again, and, and you know, played to some, you know, our, our skill and advantage in, in <laughs> celebrating black. Um, interestingly, we've, we've moved away very subtly from black. We've got some new... We now talk about shades of black, uh-huh. and I feel like we've grown up a bit now because we don't just use black anymore, but I'll, that's a technicality which we can talk yeah. about more yeah. another time. But um, the the interesting thing about that project was the the existing shells had such beautiful texture and scars from many different uses over the years. And in working with that property, the first process was to strip back all the plasterboard, the kind of nineteen late eighties, early nineties renovation, and start to reveal those scars. And then the dark colours, the the the, the tones of black that so we've got mild used. steel in the lobby. We've got mild steel. Yeah. You've got. Black joinery. You've got that lovely in the kitchen. You've got this beautiful um, black granite that kind of yeah. looks like moisture sitting on it. Yeah, it is. It's like a um, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's got a very mottled, almost volcanic surface. But it's very smooth yeah. and reflects light in interesting ways. Um, but a lot of those then insertions were set up to frame the existing shell of the building and highlight its qualities, I suppose. Yeah. In which is then a very cost-effective way of producing a piece of architecture as well, because you're you're working whole, you know, wholly with what's there and featuring mm. it rather than having to create too many features yourself. It, look, it obviously was much easier working with someone like this Fitzroy mm. client than others, because she was kind of on the same page from the beginning. Yeah. How difficult is it to kind of get your ideas across, and where are the things that you generally have to kind of Work very hard to get across the line. Um, yeah, that that is a good question. I I think these days we 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 actually try and hold a few things back, um, even through to the build stage of a project. So obviously, getting planning right and and some of the architectural concepts are uh, we often try to have the architectural concept come from the be relevant to the client or come from the client's experience so so we spend quite a bit of time in the early stages trying to engage them in the process in the idea process I suppose and and then once that idea is theirs and we're exploring that together then we find them more on board um, with that process but but then we do like to hold like the insertion of you know, sometimes quite significantly amounts of black we save until during the later end. in the process, and then we can do brush outs, and then they can see and feel. And as I said earlier, natural light's a huge player in our projects, and so once they understand the way the light's working in the space, they yeah. can then understand that yeah, those darker colours are the right so answer. So if you present too much black, whether it's mild steel or black mm. granite or whatever it is, um, 
you think people, if there's too much, people get nervous about it, and so you have to kind of stage the release of that. Yeah, look, I think so. And to be honest, there's even, I mean, there's a house that's two-thirds through construction I was visiting this morning, and I've actually got no idea what colour the interior, the bulk of the interior will be at the moment. Um, cause Do you have an idea? No, I don't. I actually <laughs> don't. And, and, and um, uh, obviously there's large parts of... There's a lot of texture, a lot of natural finish in there, but then there's large areas of, of plasterboard, which is often I find a bit unfortunate. But yeah. at this stage... The clients, you know, and to be honest, the client said today too, yeah, I'm not sure if that's white or colour or black, and it will completely transform the feel of the house mm. when we make that decision. But I don't, almost don't feel like that decision's important just yet because the, the right answer will be there, yeah. I think, once we... From your experience, because, I mean, you established um, Splinter Society. Why Splinter Society? But there must be a reason. It's kind of a, It's not a typical architectural name, no. Splinter Society. It's, it sounds no. like a brethren of some sort. It, there's, yeah, it's, it's, it's always a bit of almost embarrassing one to explain in a way, but I... I um, you don't have to explain yourself. <laughs> no, there's, there's, two, there's two reasons. One, um, one is that we, we set up our practice when we were in arch- finishing architecture school at uh, University of Melbourne, and we were very into the work of and the writing of Bernard Schumi and loved the idea that he interrupted things and caused disruption through... Um, architectural interventions into space. So this idea that we could splinter society or divide things or, or disrupt or, or, you know, just create some attention, we, we like the idea of that. Um, we've also always worked and in the, uh, we always build a lot of stuff ourselves and in the early days we a lot of our projects we involved friends who are fashion designers, um, craftspeople into our projects. So we were a big group of friends of people who like to make things and and but... Uh, myself, I never did it that well. So it was this idea that you're a society of makers, but you often got splinters in the process. And um, so it was a little bit of a, you know, there yeah. was a couple of different meanings there, but there was a relevance to how we like to work when we set up our practice. And um, it's maybe not as relevant to our work now as we're a bit older, but certainly when you setting up practice while you're still at university, you're full of ideas and, you know, and trying to probably change the world more than you, you do once you Chris, practicing. you also work quite a lot with pubs. You've done a number of pub yeah. renovations. Um, easier or more difficult than taking on a private client? Uh, we we love hospitality projects because we can test ideas and they're not as emotion Clients aren't as emotionally connected to the space. Um, and we've always had the tagline, so our firm's always been Splinter Society Architecture um, architecture and human environments and the human environments has always been about creating uh, interests interesting spaces spaces that promote a response that challenge people and through hospitality work you can do that a lot more you're creating an atmosphere for people to relax in to engage you can play with lighting and artificial lighting you can do things you can't typically do in people's houses so and they want to push boundaries a bit more they do they want to push boundaries they want to be recognizable they want people to yeah walk in and there to be a wow factor i suppose mm-hmm. so so that's been a, a again we we carry ideas from domestic work into hospitality or commercial work and back and forth I think, um, and it just opens up the possibilities for us. Um, Chris, well, you know, I don't want you to um, put you into a corner as the black architect. I mean, there's thousands of others architects out there wearing black. But your your work is very 
moody. Does that, I mean, equally, it, it appeals to a lot of people who love that aesthetic. But, you know, even though you're capable of doing lots of things and different different you know, approaches, does that actually uh, freak people out when they come in and, and when they're looking at your work, they say, oh, we just couldn't live with that, you know? And it's only a paint colour, it's only a finish, yeah. it's only a material, but does that limit your audience? It does limit it, and we do, we've, we've, we do have to pick and choose a little bit who we show what when we meet clients um, for the first time. But we, we've... We're, I feel like we're on the verge of a lighter period at the, at the moment because there are two or three houses where clients did want very light, bright houses and yet they came to our office, which always intrigued me. But I, I think it's more, it wasn't so much for that colour, it was more the play with natural materials. We use a lot of timber, we use a lot of kind of rough stone stones and we celebrate imperfections in natural materials. So I think the clients have come to us from that perspective but then they want lighter colours, yeah. so... I mean, sandstone and limestones are going to appear in a job or two in the next year, which is something I never thought I'd ever, ever touch Does it feel or work with. comfortable working in it? It's actually exciting. I think I'm discovering all these new aesthetic possibilities <laughs> that I'd been ignoring for a long time. So, I, I'm yeah, it's keeping the studio interested and exploring new things. So, I'm, um, Chris, you were also telling me about a new apartment development that you're doing in uh, the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, yeah. which sounded really interesting, using glass blocks, yeah. which, um, I mean, it's nothing new. Uh, Pierre Charot designed Maison de Verre in the late 20s, yeah. completely out of glass blocks, and they seem to be having a comeback, but yeah. you don't see that type of approach to apartment development. No, you don't. It's This This will be a really interesting one for us, and... and the idea of re coming to glass blocks sort of in, in a way came to deal with a fire rating issue because it's a, a building that's very hemmed in and borders um, um, uh, com, you know land that, that we, we need fire rated walls on basically but we're still going to get light through these through the apartments so we've actually we thought we'd push that pretty hard as, as a material and and where so there, there'll be eight or nine stories of I think I think it's nine stories actually of glass block facade wow that's which amazing. which should look really beautiful and it'll look it'll look beautiful um at night as well i think it should be quite a spectacular backlit. building backlit um and a lot of it's backlighting bathrooms as well on different rooms so it, it should be quite a, a almost glow a bit like a lantern at night this building and you'll see it from quite a fair way away but um mm. similarly through the day they should be quite prismatic interiors as well so we're quite excited about um that. chris how difficult is it to get concept like that through council because that's quite new even yeah. though it was done in the 20s you know councils don't move very quickly yeah um but to create that concept what was their initial reaction that people had to deal with like why wouldn't you just use bricks yeah i think solid bricks i think um i think all architects are dealing who are doing sort of development work now are dealing with this issue of equitable development and how you make a blank concrete boundary wall look interesting and is it's you know in a in a way it's defining a lot of melbourne's aesthetic at the moment is driving around seeing these blank walls and i think architects are grappling with that a lot and you know whether it's color whether it's texture whether it's patterns on on how you can present a fire rated wall but do something more dynamic or interesting mm -hmm. with it so i i think councils you know if it is a new idea and it's going to you know it's 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 going to contribute to the urban, you know, environment. Then they're 
you know, we've found it's it's not too difficult. And probably once it's built and others see it and then come up with the same solution, yeah. uh, then they'll probably we'll see more of more imaginative solutions. Yeah, I, I think so. It, it's mm. a very tricky thing to, to to work with these buildings that only have a front and a back and the sides are both blank. So it's, um, I think, any opportunity to make a more dynamic form or, or more interesting, you know, texture mm. on the horizon that's dealing with that problem, you mm. know, will be embraced. Um, what do you find still a challenge in day-to-day work? Because it's, you know, you've been running a practice since, well, it's getting on to 20 years yeah, and it should get easier, and there are probably parts that do get easier. But what are the things that generally continually remain challenging? Uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, we, I mean, personally, for us, Asha and I, being part business partners and life partners, it's that you never, you, you're never not talking about work, or it's you know, it's Is you, you take it home with you. Uh, it it's a problem when you try and get more. Yeah, it it is a problem. You you can't have it. You know, we're, we're not all in consumed in architecture, you know. We, we do, do like, jewellery and lots of other yeah, things. Yeah, we like other things, but then there's always, you know, it's it's unusual to not be talking about some little kind of complication with work or some, yeah. uh, you know, at odd hours of the night. Or, um, But, I, I mean, the, the, the real... I mean, the challenge with all architecture, I suppose, is being able to find good, good clients, receptive clients, and... Um, I think once you've got a client on board, the rest of the process isn't actually that difficult. You go through the motions and it's actually a real pleasure, but it's that, you know, finding the right client and then, you know, locking that job down. And, and it's the commercial reality, I think, of architecture yeah. that's the most difficult. And, and in terms of designing with you and Asha, how does it tend to work? Do you tend to kind of focus on certain areas? Asha creates more the certain areas i mean yeah. what's the process is, or is it just back forth with ideas or you take um, care of some and she looks after others they bounce back and forth projects uh, we're very very different i'm i'm a maximalist and she's a minimalist um i'm chaotic and she's highly maximalist in your aesthetic yeah i like adding more and layers and and you know i find it hard to resist adding things that i you know, you know, taking opportunities to insert more bits and pieces into projects, and Asha is about stripping back. And a bit I, like Fanaki jewellery. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and so we have this funny relationship where jobs go through, and it, every job's different, and some clients it's more on one of us or the other, but where jobs bounce back and forth between us where we debate heavily whether things should be added or subtracted and cleaned up or allowed to be a bit more expressive and... Um, it's quite a yeah we it's a it's a healthy debate that we go through on all jobs. Do you have a third party in the office that you usually defer to? Uh, we put it to the office regularly, and um, <laughs> it's it's I never know which way it'll go. To be honest, I think at the end of the day the client makes the yeah. decision, but it's a matter of which of those ideas we present to the client. Yeah. So um, yeah, we 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 all get along very well. Chris, look, thanks so much for coming on to the program today. Um, I have been following your work for quite some time, and I'm never disappointed. I always find, even though a lot of them are black and moody, which is my aesthetic, there is that very uh, strong point of difference that you can read quite clearly as soon as you enter one space. Yeah, you know, thank the, you so much. Well, it's generous of you to, no, to say lovely. that. They're lovely it's... pieces of work. And um, not surprisingly, a lot of magazines are always trying to get to your work first, including myself. So, um, look, thanks so much for coming on the program. 
And uh, you've been listening to Stephen Crafty with Chris Stanley, uh, co-director of Splinter Society at RMIT University in Melbourne. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>